0: Hello, I'm Karen Pascal. I'm the executive director of the Henry Nowen Society. Welcome to a new episode of Henry Nowen Now and Then. Our goal at the Henry Nowen Society is to extend the rich spiritual legacy of Henry to audiences around the world. Each week, we endeavor to bring you a new interview with someone who has been deeply influenced by the writings of Henry Nowen. We invite you to share the daily meditations in these podcasts with your friends and family. Through them, we can continue to introduce new audiences to the writings and teachings of Henry Nowen and remind each listener that they are a beloved child of God. Now, let me take a moment to introduce today's guest. Today on this podcast, I have the pleasure of interviewing Barbara Brown Taylor. In 2014, Barbara was included in Time Magazine's list of 100 most influential people on the planet. This best-selling author, teacher, and Episcopal priest, has in fact written 13 books, three of which earned her a place on the New York Times bestseller list. Barbara, you have a very impressive list of books published and honors received. I love the fact that you were listed by Time Magazine as one of the 100 most influential people in the world. That's quite the category to have landed in. <laughs> I knew you wrote a beautiful forward to a book by Henry Nouwen called A Sorrow Shared, This book combines two little books Henry wrote around the death of his mother, the book In Memoriam and A Letter of Consolation. Your introduction, well, in your introduction, I learned that you knew Henry from your time as a student at Yale. And you write such a great description of him in your foreword. If you don't mind, I'm going to start with that, and then I'd let you maybe tell me about the Henry that you knew. You write, when I read it, I was struck once again by the distance between Henry in person and Henry on the page, and you're referring to having read his his books, the Genesee Diary. At that point, in person, he sometimes sh- shook with the effort of containing his rage at those who had disappointed him. On the page, he pulled his heart open with both of his hands so that anyone who wanted could walk in. Henry's great gift, both in person and on the page was to struggle publicly with the essential business of becoming human before God. I love that. Tell us about the Henry you knew.
1: Uh, I, um, I matriculated to Yale Divinity School in 73 and graduated in 76. And that tells you how old I am, which means my memory is an ocean, and I'll fish up things <laughs> and we'll assume they happened between those three years. But, but I took I took an early class with him, I think on clowning, if you can believe that, in 19, you know, that would have been 73 or 74. And he actually invited a Jesuit um, named Ken fight F-E-I-T, to come be on campus as a He called himself an itinerant fool. This is Ken Fight, not Henry Nowen. But that was my introduction to Henry is this Jesuit monk in white face rowing a a rowboat on the quadrangle on grass. And Henry had brought him to Yale Divinity School to to lighten everybody up. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. I said, I'll take I'll take anything he teaches. So he invited me to be his teaching assistant for a course on. Aging, spirituality of aging. So I have a lot of memories from that as well. But what what a combination, clowning and aging, and through both of them, I, I did see what you just read, which was that that Henry um, he let his emotions show, and that was not a common thing for a male professor at Yale Divinity School in the early 70s. But whatever was going on with him, you could usually tell. <laughs> <laughs> and and that was part of his authenticity. You know, the book that came out soon after, I think, Wounded Healer, became a, you know the home base for so many people in parish ministry after that. And he was a wounded healer, and it, it that freed an awful lot of people to be wounded healers because they thought they had to be whole healers. They couldn't couldn't have wounds. So so the, those are the years I knew him, and um, and was his teaching assistant and, and remember everything from him coming through the common room of the dormitory in which he lived, handing out books that he'd just published. You know, he got the 25 author copies and didn't know what to do with them. So he gave them (laughs) to those of us watching television in the lounge. (laughs) And I remember he got robbed more than once because he always left his door open in that dorm and he would come out and say, well, the stereo equipment's gone again. So (laughs) he was, um, he, he, I guess that tells you he was one of us. He lived in the dorm. You know. Yeah. His, uh, his apartment, his monastery, was among the students whom he taught. So I, I would never romanticize him because I think that would do him a disservice. But he, he was a, 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 a strong presence of what I wrote, of, of the struggle to be human. And he never hid that that was a struggle.
0: Well, I was so glad that you suggested that we would look at your book, "Learning to Walk in the Dark," and you said Henry would have loved this book. Now, why do you think he would love the book? I, I can guess right away, but I'd love to hear from you. Oh, I think,
1: I, I think it's a fair description of a way of life. He would be comfortable with that description of a way of life. For for me, it settles out into everything from becoming. More comfortable in physical darkness, because I think physical and spiritual darkness are twins they 're you know very closely wed but it's it 's also the way of unknowing you now you, you you take a step and you go slowly and you 're not positive and you use your senses and you think what you remember is over there, but it might have moved in the dark and it, it's a it 's a humble and tentative and um, whatever the opposite of arrogant is way of of moving through the world, both spiritually and and humanly. So I wanted to explore that in a book because so many people, especially in the rural South where I live, think you have to be in the light 24-7 or, you know, that if if there's anything dark going on, you're in terrible shape and the devil's got your left leg. So (laughs) I wanted to write a book that explored the sacred dimension of darkness, even though it's frightening.
0: It's interesting because you talk about finding a lunar spirituality. I'd like you to talk just a little bit more about that full solar spirituality. That really rang bells with me. I mean, I just I I, I felt I felt we had to be honest about that and then we can kind of go down this journey of what we might find in the dark about ourselves and about God and and about the world we're in. Yeah.
1: Well that was a lesson if anyone listening in is familiar with wisdom literature like Ecclesiastes and Job and um some of the less read books of scripture, I think describe the lunar way they are they're a minor theme, and they would be the first to admit that the divine is found often in first of all, frank statement of reality of the way things are, and then by learning from nature, from you know the wisdom of creation. So when I started noticing that the moon never looked the same two nights in a row, I settled into wisdom literature mode and said, I'm learning something important here about the way of the soul, if I can pay attention to it. So again, I was raised in a full solar spiritual tradition where the lights were always on and everybody was bright and cheerful and in the youth choir <laughs> <laughs> and, and and my life was not that way you know as i yeah. as i grew and and grew in love of god my life was not that way so um so the moon the moon oh. came to be important
0: i i found as you described that full solar spirituality i i found the ache that it's brought to me, where everything is, mm. praise the Lord and, and and all. You know, you have to be happy all the time, and you have to declare, um, God is victorious over this, and and it doesn't leave room for the depth of how we're created and for the places God meets us. If He doesn't meet us in the darkness, who mm-hmm. does? You know, that's really one of the deepest questions: is mm-hmm. where we find God. True,
1: and and I have found. In responses to this book that darkness it, still it's so hard to budge that as a cipher for everything that's frightening, depressing, full of grief and loss, and to go one step further and i and I took that step several times in the book is to discover the embrace and the womb of the dark the 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 dark mother think black Madonna you know think. Think the mother who is waiting in the dark. I just started thinking about seeds in the ground and, and wombs and all of that's dark as well, but it's, it's, it's an embrace. And so, so there's also a wonderful experience in the dark for those with the, with the nerve to find it and to sit down and to let the dark wrap its arms around you. And it's not trying to smother you. It's trying to bring you to new life.
0: You know, I was uh, very impressed at at the research that you did in this. You know, you literally went caving, you uh, went through experiences of what it is to be blind. Tell us a little bit. You know, in a way, I, I I was really delighted with that. I learned a lot from that. But tell us what you were learning and 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 your courage in doing that. Mm-hmm. You know, I thought I was so brave to go caving, and
1: then I met a man who spent a week alone in a cave and thought, oh, well, at least I stuck my toe in, so it was not nearly as brave as it sounded. But it was interesting to find out how many people that terrified who, who said they could never, never do it. And and my surprise was thinking I I couldn't either, and finding that, that very warm, safe feeling way, way in the cave, because I had a guide who knew the way out. <clears throat> but the, the the reason for all the experiments was i was trusting the relationship between the physical and the spiritual you know the material and the 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 soul so i devised a lot of experiments for myself that would take me bodily into the dark to see how that resonated with my soul so you know i'm the, i'm the kid there used to be a commercial in the probably the minute television was invented, a commercial where a little kid named Mikey would try anything. His brothers, you know, tried to... They found a cereal they had never tasted. They said, Mikey will try it. And I've always thought of myself as a Mikey. <laughs> I, just, I, I do things on behalf of other people so I can tell them what it was like.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I I said that in the pages. And it's very funny. The scariest chapter for me in your book, by the way, it doesn't sound like it's the cave. It, it actually was the cottage you, you know you go out into this little oh. cabin and there are ants crawling on you and I'm just like oh I can't stand that I mean I it to me just overwhelmed me I am one of those people who in the dark is afraid of the things that have eight legs or you know, that might nip you in the night so I I respected the fact that you said okay I got to to journey there what has changed in you as a result of writing this book?
1: Um, what, what happened for me is a much greater comfort in the dark where I live, though I'm covered with bruises from running into things. That's the bodily part. <laughs> <laughs> and then soon after that book was published, I found myself a oh, primary caregiver for a mother and a sister who were declining at the same time. And it was... <laughs> You know, It was very difficult, and, and I found myself in a much darker emotional space than I had ever been in. Now, though, I take that as a, I don't know, some kind of signal. The book prepared me for that, and then the cosmos or the divine said, well, let's see how much you learned <laughs> learning to walk in the dark yeah. you know, and trusting what you can't see and, and going a step further. So in a way, I wrote the book, and, and then the final exam arrived in my life in um, really difficult ways. So, so I'm so grateful that, that I had the chance to explore the material before the material became my
0: life. It's interesting that you mentioned that here you were um, a, a teaching assistant to uh, Henry on on the book Aging, which would be kind of an early look at that. I've always been amazed at how much Henry had to offer in that area, and we, we did a number of books um, around caregiving um, because caring for someone who is not going to survive, is not going to right. live. And being in that moment and bringing God into that moment is a very deep and important part of life. But it's a hard part. We don't want to go there. Mm -hmm. I loved, you you told a a beautiful little story. and It kind of reminds me of what you're talking about right now. You told this story about rescuing a sea turtle. And you write, Mm -hmm. sometimes it's hard to know if you're being killed or saved Mm -hmm. by the hands that turn your life upside down.
1: Isn't that true? Yeah. So true.
0: And I think... You know,
1: what you just evoked in me is all the books I have on aging on my bookshelf that I bought when I was in my early 20s because of Henry Nowen. And and I think that put something in place that has served me well as I've moved into those years myself because I turned 70 in the fall, which means, you know, I've outlived Henry because he died when he was six years younger than I. So, yeah, uh, yeah it's it's a thing. To trust and again, I do I do connect that to him. I had I had more than one mentor at Yale, but he was clearly one um who had his own turtle turned upside down over and over again. Yeah. And I think um yeah, he had a lot of experience
0: in that. You write something in the book which um I mean it's easy for us to to go from darkness to despair and you write if you're being hammered by despair, spend time in a community where despair is daily bread. Can you help us understand that?
1: I trusted someone I was reading at the time, Miriam Greenspan, and she wrote a book called um, I don't know, "It's Like Mindfulness of the Dark Emotions." But when I read it, I thought she was absolutely right, and and it's a matter of turning toward what frightens you turning toward what strikes you as a darkness too deep to bear and and there's there are ways in which to turn toward instead of away begins almost like homeopathic medicine to give you more strength you know more um not immunity that'd be the wrong word but you know more more ability to to face what it is you're scared of yourself so so in my case, uh, you know, I've all my life been way, way tuned to the loss of death, and it, it it turns out one of my favorite things to do in parish ministry was go to homes for the you know assisted living homes. I just loved it because people there were so free, they were so utterly liberated. <laughs> <And> that, <laughs> that that ended up being a, a wonderful tonic. Maybe that's the word tonic instead of you know getting immunity. So so I was borrowing Greenspan's knowledge, testing it, and finding it true.
0: You know, it, it's interesting. I'd love to go down the 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 path of talking with you about the dark night of the soul. I hear so many people use that phrase. Can you explain it? You you go there, and you are very discerning about it. Talk a little bit about that dark night of the soul.
1: I think we could talk for about a week um, about that because the there are so many kinds, and there's not one. There are whole seasons of those nights, um, but I'll but I'll go for the embrace part of it, which is to be in a dark night of the soul. And now I I take a deep bow towards John of the Cross, is to be stripped of everything else, and and not to have a clue where you are or where you're going, and it's to be absolutely abandoned to the love of God because that's all that's left even when you can't feel it, even when there seems to be no God there. But where that has landed in my life and what comes to mind immediately is the 10 days I spent in a hospice with my father while he was spending his last 10 days on earth. And it became a sanctuary, a monastery, a cathedral of quiet. Never in my life have I been in a room and known there was no place else I was supposed to be that I was doing exactly what I was put on earth to do and and I think if I can carry that confidence into a dark night of the soul it can be there it I don't want to speak easily of it or the cosmos will give me another <laughs> finally, Sam, after we hang up, but um, those dark nights—they come often. They have different shapes, and if I can remember John of the Cross and others who've been there, there there is food for me there. If I can, uh, if I can uh, sit still long enough to accept it,
0: it certainly isn't something that we seek, but we do find ourselves in that place at times. It's a deep, deep. Uh, not so much valley, but an, an aloneness, and to mm-hmm. uh, to to trust that God is in it, even in the dark, is is maybe all that you can trust at that moment.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I hear I hear from a number of people, perhaps because I wrote this book. Who some are pastors, you know, some are people who've been devout all their lives, and then they. They collide with a final illness or the final illness of a loved one, and they say, the worst part is, I don't sense God. I don't mm-hmm. sense God. And w- without, I hope, ever being trite, it seems to me that's one of the gifts of Matthew and Mark's stories of Jesus' last hours is neither did he. And, you know, so that, that, sense, of, um, that sense of no sense of God. Yeah. It's a full story. That's more of what you don't know, right? You don't know if you're alone or not. You don't know.
0: You take various twists and turns in this book, and they all help me understand a little bit about you and and bring questions to mind for me. But one of the things you talk about is you share that the old ways of being Christian are not working anymore for many people. Um, Mm -hmm. Tell me a little bit about that, and tell me a bit about how that is for you. Where are you at with the old ways of being Christian and what what is becoming real and valuable to you today.
1: This is very age related for me and it's going on with people much younger than I, but I want to tag mine to my age and to 37 years in the episcopal priesthood, you know, and really having logged Hours. I mean, if I if I had a flight manual, it would have a lot of hours, <laughs> and and they and they were professional hours. Yeah. You know, it, it's a very odd thing to be paid to get dental insurance and disability insurance for for loving people in the name of God. That's bizarre. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you know, you have to tag uh, what I'm about to say to my age and to my my vocation in in life. But I have found. Um, A a deep need now to transcend many of the boundaries of language and liturgy and ethos that sustained me for many, many years. They were the cradle. They, they, They were my way of getting around in the world. They even told me how to dress in the morning and and I love m- my religious tradition if I had to choose all over again and I did choose the episcopal church yet a- at this age I even have a hard time with the beloved liturgy that came out of my mouth for so long you know especially the part the parts about not being worthy to gather up the crumbs and 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 implicitly being so bad that somebody had to die to fix it for me and I hear the liturgy in ways I'm not sure I even heard it when I was a participant. So, so I find myself eager for more silence and solitude and to have less language set about my experience of the divine or my, my search for. So it just feels like um, off, off the leash, late in life, a, a rewilding of my love of God.
0: I love that. I love that. What are you seeing today with young people in faith? Obviously, you have many opportunities to speak in that setting. What are you seeing? And I'm curious if you feel Henry now and has anything to offer at this point from your kind of knowing of Henry and and his work. Uh, That's a wonderful
1: question. His name does not come up with, the say, 30-year-olds that that I spend some time with. And, And there are two different kinds. I mean there are a dozen different kinds, but the two I know best are people who are not churched and might not even say they're spiritual but not religious, but they're fabulous people. You know, they're they're curious and literate and generous and they're involved in the world and they're sensitive and they're they nourish community but the divine, the sacred, the religious is just not part of their their lens for seeing or being part of that or talking about it. So people call them secular, and I want to say, I don't think that's an adequate word, you know, but, but they're on an independent path of some kind, and they're young. But And then the other group, because I'm in the South, are people who freely call themselves um, post post-evangelicals who largely became disenchanted with evangelical Christianity, through some of the teachings, but especially through the last presidential cycle in the United States. They just decided if evangelicals were going big for President Trump, they needed to look for another way to identify. And and uh, and Henry Nowen doesn't come up for either of these, but I, I think it's because there's something about the younger age group that is so au courant. You know, there's not, I, there are not a lot of old books on my shelf that I think I could hand them and they'd say, wow.
0: Yeah, interesting. Because
1: their ears are so tuned to the contemporary, to what's happening right now that's different from what happened yesterday. But you're asking me a question I didn't prepare to answer. So <laughs> I, well, I, I love the energy. I, I find total hope in the world with these folks in charge, though, though they blame my generation for everything that's wrong. But <laughs> but I am a firm believer in intergenerational friendships and hope to keep mine
0: Healthy. Well, I have been just awed by the young people coming up, just awed by the last few years in the midst of all that was going on, awed by the the fight and the vision and the clarity of uh, and the excitement about doing something about their world, yes. whether it's about guns or it's about uh, the environment or it's about Black Lives Matter. I, I'm thrilled that they're there and they're talking and they're bringing leadership and they're bringing vision for that. I really am. I think... A partnership I find with you and Henry was honesty. I see that in your books. It's become, I think, a signature of what you write. You write from your heart. You write with an openness and an honesty that can be really funny, but also in its own way, really daring. And And I think you're daring, I would say, to me, in being honest about where the traditions of faith are and where they're going— I love Phyllis Tickle's thing about we're, we're in the midst of Christianity's semi-millennial rummage sale. In other words, some things are, are probably no longer holding up and can be let go of. I thought that was terrific. You included that in your book, and, and it made me, made me giggle. Uh, t- tell me, where are you at with—I I know you are no longer an, a, an active priest, but uh, where are you with the church? Where, where is it on your radar now? It's central to my
1: identity, although I've almost stopped using church, singular, church as I've never been more aware (laughs) (laughs) that to identify as Christian and to talk about the church is a fantasy (laughs) that that may exist in God's mind, but on earth, man, we're in churches and a lot of us excommunicate each other on a regular basis. so. So my relationship with the church is beloved or critic, not beloved, but I'm, I'm, I'm a loving critic of Christian tradition though I, I that's central to my identity. I live in a rural county where there's only one Episcopal church and it's got about eighty people in it and it's um the church I served so in our tradition we don't go back there much because there's somebody there who's the pastor now and even though I left a long time ago it's just better to you know let let that have its it's new and current life, so I don't know. I think I'm on the outside of the inside now. I'm on the outer edge. That's a Richard Rohr idea. I'm on the outer edge of the inside. So I'm I'm in churches with some frequency but not the same one on a regular basis. And I'm gonna sound real pagan now and I'm gonna welcome that. But the whole world has become quite rife with um, the holy for me. Mm. So the way I'm registering that, again, as as a person of a certain age is, from dust I came and to dust I shall return. And I'm pretty focused on dirt right now (laughs) and the ground and planting and growing. And that feels like church used to feel to me, which is centering reminding me of my true size in the world, which is not very big, that I'm part of a a web, a luminous web of being. Um, So, you know, my sense of church has become pretty Teilhard de Chardin, pretty cosmic. It's pretty out there in terms of the divine presence in all that is. And that takes me outside a lot.
0: You remind me of... uh... A moment in my life that, as you talk about the soil, I remember feeling in my spirit that God said, "Would you be willing to be plowed under?" Yeah. And it was so scary. It was so scary. And at the same time, I felt God is not afraid to plow us under. There's more to come. But we, in being plowed under, you become soil for new seeds. And new things mm-hmm. sprout from your life. And that whole promise that you would be fruitful in your life. Henry looked for fruitfulness in death. Uh, I love that promise that we will bear fruit. That, And sometimes I challenge God with the idea, I want that fruit to be so abundant. I want it to be beautiful. Uh, but mm. you have to be plowed under. And I love this book because I think you took me on that journey and... Um, I will just read this. There's this little quote on the back that I loved. It says, uh, "A charming, witty, and wise guide into the heart of darkness." And there's plenty <laughs> here to ponder. And and that's right. That's what you you've given me. And uh, I know I'm going to go back and read more of your work, Barbara. I'm thrilled with it, and uh, and I thank you for sharing with us what you have. It's been it's been good. Thank you.
1: Oh, thank you so much. And I'm gonna. Spend the rest of the day wondering if I'm willing to be plowed under. I'm not <laughs> even sure it matters if I'm willing, Karen. I think it's gonna happen.
0: <laughs> exactly. actually, it's funny as you become as you partner with people who are going through incredible unexpected turns in their life and or losses, that's part of being plowed under and you and you wonder, could anything ever come out of this that's good? But mm-hmm. that's also to me there was courage within this book that said, there is stuff that comes out of being plowed under. There is stuff that comes out of darkness that uh, God's God's in the darkness and he's not afraid of it and he will not abandon you there. It's what I feel, though I think you <laughs> stated clearly you could mm-hmm. feel abandoned mm-hmm. in that.
1: Thank you for telling me that. It sounds like um, that book is is a, just exactly what I wanted it to be. Between you and me, anyhow, it's a it's a conversation, and each of us can pick up, pick it up, yeah, and and yeah. talk it through,
0: and go where we're supposed to go with it. Thank you so much for taking time to be with me today. Loved having you as a as a guest on uh, Henry now and now and then, and invite you to take a look on our website, and and uh, perhaps you'll enjoy seeing the documentary because you'll see your old friend Henry in that. Um, thank you, Barbara. Appreciate your time oh, so thank much.
1: You. Thanks so much for asking me. A great gift to me. Thank you, Karen.
0: Thank you for listening to today's podcast. What an honor for me to spend time with Barbara Brown Taylor. She's a wonderful thinker, writer, and woman of faith. Truly, her book, Learning to Walk in the Dark, is full of great wisdom and insight. I want to read more from this gifted spiritual guide. For more resources related to today's podcast, click on the links on the podcast page of our website. You'll find links to anything mentioned today, as well as book suggestions. If you enjoyed today's podcast, we would be grateful if you would take time to give us a review or a thumbs up or pass it on to your friends and companions on the faith journey. Thanks for listening. Until next time.